Open up to Mark chapter 11. We've been out of Mark for a couple of weeks, speaking on special topics, but we're back now. Lord, as we come into your word now, we ask that you would do a deep work in our hearts. Lord, we would confess together openly here that we love you, that we desire you, and yet we would also confess when it comes to spiritual things so often our slothfulness, our laziness, and our neglect of this relationship that you've given us with you. Today, we just ask that you would speak to us about bearing fruit for your glory. Jesus, you said that your disciples would be recognized by their fruit and their love for one another. And Lord, we would confess that we fall short in these areas, that where there ought to be the fruit of the Spirit abounding from our lives, so often it's the flesh, and where there ought to be love freely given, so often there's selfishness. We ask that today, by the preaching of your word, you would, through your spirit, begin a transformation in us. Cause us to be more like you, Lord. More like you, more of a lover. More of a giver. More of one that would be concerned for the healing and the well-being of others. That the fruit of the spirit would begin to abound forth from us congregationally and individually. So, Lord, speak to us in your word, enlighten us, show us, teach us, lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys will remember that in our last time in Mark, we spoke about the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry was that time where Jesus deliberately set the stage to come down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and up to the Temple Mount. It was the prophetic and technical first coming of Jesus Christ. That is to say, it was the time when Jesus was presented to the nation as the Messiah, as the King of Israel, as the Savior. And we know from our study that he fulfilled several Old Testament prophecies. Daniel was given a prophecy by the messenger angel that spoke of that day of the triumphal entry to the very day. Zechariah 9.9 outlined the method by which he would come. And Psalm 118, verse 26, told us what people would be singing when he came. And we see that in verse 9 where it says, And those who went before him and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And we pick it up with our text for this week in verse 11. It says, And Jesus entered and came into the temple. And after looking around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Temple services had concluded for that day. Verse 12, and on the next day, you'll remember now this is Monday morning, the triumphal entry was on a Sunday. When they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not yet the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple and to overturn their tables of the money changers and the seats and those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And Jesus began to teach and to say to them, 
Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for all the multitude were astonished at his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, now the next day, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, Behold, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered and said to him, Have faith in God. We see in our text today a Jesus revealed that many are uncomfortable with. We enjoy the Jesus who is meek and kind and lowly and gentle. The one who is gentle to restore the woman caught in adultery. The one who would take up the children in his arms and bless them. We enjoy the Jesus that would allow the prostitute to weep and to worship at his feet. We enjoy the one who gracefully and mercifully and wonderfully called tax gatherers and fishermen. We enjoy the one that calmed the storm when the disciples were in the time of need. We enjoy the one that when the people were hungry, he fed them and there was an abundance. We enjoy that Jesus. But we see today in our text a bigger picture of our Lord. We see here him not acting meek and gentle, but Jesus as the judge. We see Jesus acting in anger. No doubt righteous indignation, justified anger, but we see Jesus acting in judgment and in anger, and he commits here two rather violent acts. First, the cursing of the fig tree. Poor little fig tree. There it is, just putting forth its fruit. And the God of the universe says, you fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit of you again. And it withers from the roots up. And then he walks into the temple mount, and there's everybody in the court of the Gentiles going about their business, and he starts throwing their tables over. And it says that he knocked the chairs over. And he wouldn't let them sell, and he wouldn't let them carry things, and he was setting their stuff free. It's the second time that Jesus cleansed the temple. The first time that he did so is in John chapter 2. And in John chapter 2, we're told that before the Lord overturned the tables, he sat down and he made a whip. Now, it doesn't say explicitly in our text whether or not the Lord used the whip, but I would assume that if God is going to make a whip, he intends on using it. This is a different Jesus entirely. No, it's not. It's the same Lord. It's the same God. And there is a deep significance to these two acts of judgment. What is the significance? Well, first I want us to understand a couple things about the cursing of the fig tree. You must understand that Jesus did not curse the fig tree out of hunger. Jesus was one who was able to skip a meal or two, unlike ourselves. You remember in Matthew chapter 4 that he had been fasting for 40 days. And it says explicitly in Matthew 4 that at the end of the fast, he became hungry. And at that time, being led into the wilderness by the Spirit, Satan began to tempt him. Knowing that he was hungry, said, Jesus, turn these stones to bread. And our Lord was able to withstand the temptation with the word of God. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he was able to skip not just 40 days worth of meals, but even in the temptation to turn stones to bread. Again, in John chapter 4, 
He had a divine appointment with a woman of the well, with a woman at the well. He went out of his way to go to wait at this well for this woman. While he was waiting to minister to her spiritual needs, we're told in John chapter 4 that the disciples went off to go into town and get lunch. The Lord was able to miss a meal to minister to her needs. So it would be silly for us to think that the Lord cursed this fig tree merely out of hunger. It would also be wrong of us to think that Jesus had an ill temper. It was Monday morning after all, you know. It's Monday morning and he's hungry and he comes to the fig tree. No figs on it. Curse you, fig tree. Never think that of our Lord. There was a New Testament scholar. Don't know if he's dead or alive. His name is T.W. Manson. 1975, he wrote a book called The Sayings of Jesus. And in writing about this episode, he wrote this. It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expressed in forcing a crop of figs out of season. God have mercy on that man's soul. The audacity to write that about our Lord He apparently didn't doubt the power of the Lord that he was able to cause the fig tree to wither or to bear fruit if he had chosen. But he did, however, seem to doubt the character of our Lord and his good judgment, thinking himself wiser than Jesus. God have mercy on him. Saints, take this with you to the grave. We do not judge the word of God. It judges us. We do not judge the Son of God. He judges us. Many have judged this incident as being a waste of the tree. Poor tree, they said, minding his own business, if trees could mind business. And yet we'll realize when we see that Jesus was teaching a profound spiritual lesson that this tree now becomes for us the second most significant tree in the history of God's redemptive plan. The first most important tree being the tree that was used to make the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? And the second tree being this one. Because through this tree, the Lord will teach us the necessity of bearing fruit in our own lives. You need to understand that as we look at this incident, that Jesus came to save men and not trees. And in his effort to save men and women, everything that Jesus said or did was right and was necessary. He had no wasted words. There were no futile acts. Everything that he did and said was significant and necessary for the glory of God and the saving and sanctifying of men and women. The Lord is right in all that he does. The Holy Spirit gives us a hint as to the significance of this moment when he says at the end of verse 14, and his disciples were listening. The disciples this morning, on this Monday morning, were paying close attention to our Lord and what he might do. You'll remember that the day before was a triumphal entry, and we'll see in a moment that he said some significant things on that eve. They're listening to the Lord this morning. And so Jesus, knowing this, takes advantage of the situation. He's going to use the fig tree as a point of reference to teach a spiritual truth. Now, it is true that he came to the fig tree looking for food. 
says that expressly in the text. Saw the fig tree, wondered if perhaps there was food on it. I don't know why the Lord didn't have special revelation at this time. I don't know why the Lord didn't know whether or not there were figs on it. We see in the gospel accounts that there are times where the Lord knew the heart of men. We see that there are times when he knew what they would say. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what would happen next. He had special revelation. He was holy God, and yet he was holy man. And yet in this instant, we see the humanity of God, the humanity of Christ, excuse me. For some reason, he had to go inspect the tree. Why that is, I don't know. So he goes to look for the tree, and there's no fruit on it. Verse 13 gives us a clue when it says at the end, for it was not the season for figs. Was the Lord just thoroughly out of touch and didn't know what season it was? No, this was the week of Passover when he made his triumphal entry when he would die upon the cross. Remember, we believe in the doctrine of the pre-existence of Christ Jesus. He is the second member of the Godhead. He has always been. He knew the prophecies of his coming. He knew this moment in history. He certainly knew when trees gave forth figs. There is a hint in that phrase, it was not the season for figs, in what the Lord was looking for. Listen to me. The Lord was looking for the first fruits. This was April. It's the week of the Passover. The Passover happens in April. In April, the fig leaves in Israel would give for the fig trees, would give forth their leaves. They would be covered in leaves. The main harvest of the figs wouldn't come until the end of May, the beginning of June. It was not yet that season. It's still April. There's leaves on the tree. Everything is normal. But we know that in March in Israel, the trees would give forth an edible bud. Just before the leaves came, they would give forth an edible bud. And this was a common food for the peasants in Israel during the time, Jesus being a part of that society. The poor folk and the peasants. And so it would be common for them to see a tree in April with leaves on it and expect to find some of these first fruits, some of these edible buds. And so the Lord came looking for these edible buds. And the presence of the leaf and the absence of the March edible buds told him that this tree wouldn't fruit in May and June. It didn't have those edible first fruits now. It wouldn't have fruits later. This was a barren tree. And so he takes advantage of the situation and he he decides to give his disciples a living parable. So what is he teaching them? By withering, by cursing, this barren fig tree that was giving forth no fruit. Important for us to understand that throughout the Bible, the fig tree is a picture of Israel. God, when speaking of Israel, often employs the picture or the phraseology of the fig tree. Also of the vineyard. Let's look at Jeremiah 8.13 that illustrates that. The Lord, when he was speaking some judgment through Jeremiah to Judah, said, I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the tree. And the leaf shall wither and what I have given them shall pass away. There we see the Lord referring to Israel, specifically the southern kingdom of Judah, as a fig tree who in his judgment would be caused to wither. Hosea 9.10, the Lord says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. 
I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. There is a reference to that March edible bud. I viewed your fathers as that first fruit of the fig tree. God using some figurative language to say that Israel is like a fig tree, giving forth its foliage, and it ought to be bearing fruit. Micah, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, the prophet says, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers and the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. And then he explains what he means. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among them. So this is very clear throughout the Bible. God portrays Israel as both a grapevine and a fig tree, the fruit of which he expects and inspects. God expects that Israel, the fig tree, would give forth fruit, and he comes to inspect it. He looks for fruit. And we get a hint of what that fruit is through the prophet Micah when he says, there was no fruit, there was no godly person in the land, no upright person. So to be fruitful in the Christian life is to be godly. What does that mean? It's not the New Age teaching of becoming like God. It's not as the cults say that you will become a god. It means to share in the characteristics of Christ. To be imitators of Christ, as Ephesians chapter 5 says. He is our example. We are to follow him in character and in conduct. Uprightness means to keep our hearts right before him. Now, the disciples, when they were listening on this Monday morning to the Lord curse the fig tree, they would have in their little Jewish minds this imagery of Israel as a fig tree. They knew that. It was familiar to them as they grew up learning the Torah, that Israel was like a fig tree. So that would have been in their minds. And two other things would have been in their mind. Sometime prior, Jesus gave a parable about a fig tree in Luke chapter 13. We'll have it on the screen for you, and I'll read it. In Luke chapter 13, it says in verse 6, And Jesus began telling them this parable. A certain man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. We see here another picture of Israel, the fig tree and the vineyard, and a picture of Jesus coming and looking for fruit. And the uh, story is related, the parable said that for three years I came looking for fruit and it's born none. The ministry of Christ Jesus was some three years long. And every year in his ministry, he would come to Jerusalem during the Passover during the Feast of Tabernacles, and during the other high holidays, he would come to Jerusalem, and no doubt there he was looking for fruit. Jesus came looking for fruit in Israel. He said that he came to save men, but he was sent first to the lost sheep of Israel. He came looking for faith. He came looking for fruit. And when there was none, the Lord says, well, let's cut this tree out. And in the parable, which is illustrating a point concerning Israel, This man says, let it alone, sir, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. Until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. A picture of the refining of Israel. That there will come a time when God will dig around Israel, so to speak. Turn up the soil. 
and fertilize it. It'll be a fertilization by fire. It's the tribulation period. Tribulation period is called, among other things, the time of Israel's refining, the time of Jacob's trouble. It is that time where God will refine Israel to the point and purge Israel to the point of recognizing him as the Messiah. We are told in Zechariah chapter 12 that at his second coming to Israel, that they will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn and recognize Jesus to be the Messiah. So these Jewish disciples would have had in their mind the overall imagery of the nation of Israel being a fig tree to speak. Of this parable that Jesus spoke some time ago in their hearing. But what would have been also most prevalent in their mind was the evening before during the triumphal entry. And the book of Luke includes something for us that Jesus said and did that is omitted from Mark. And together they give us a full picture. Luke chapter 19 we have it on the screen for you. Jesus is making the triumphal entry. And you remember the Pharisees said, hey, tell your disciples to be quiet. They're singing that Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, remember? And Jesus says in Luke 40, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And there's something very significant in Luke 19, 41. And when Jesus approached, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. The days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. We taught last time as we spoke about the triumphal entry that it was thoroughly prophesied of in the Old Testament and that Israel had every opportunity to recognize this coming of the Messiah. And when they failed to recognize the coming of the Messiah, they failed to receive him, therefore they rejected him. Jesus, being rejected by them, pronounced judgment upon them. That's what we just read. He prophesied that there would come a day where Jerusalem would be destroyed. There wouldn't be one stone left upon another. We know that that was fulfilled in A.D. 70. And then they would be dispersed, and we've seen the fulfillment of that in the following centuries. But I want you to know that before Jesus pronounced destruction, before he pronounced judgment, what did he do? What did he do? It's not tricky, saints. What did he do? He wept over the city. The Lord did not come full of wrath. He didn't come delighting in judgment. He came delighting in mercy. It says in John 3, 17, God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He didn't come to deal forth judgment. He came to give out mercy, to die on the cross on our behalf for our sins. The Lord takes no delight and judging humanity that has rejected him. We are told in Ezekiel chapter 33, roundabout verse 11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rather, I wish that they would repent and turn and be saved. God is not waiting to dole out judgment. He doesn't delight in it. He delights in mercy. He delights in grace. He delights in forgiving us. But if we reject that forgiveness and that grace and that mercy, then God being just 
has no judicial choice left other than to judge us. But before judgment comes the weeping of God. What do you think it was like in the hearts of the disciples when they saw Jesus weep over Jerusalem that day? By this time, they had a profound understanding of who he was. They had seen him raise the widow's son from the dead. They had seen him heal the lepers. They had seen him heal the cripples. They had seen him walk upon the water and still the storms. They had seen them feed the 5,000 and the 4,000. They had seen his mercy and they had heard his words. They had an understanding that this was the Son of God, the Messiah, God in the flesh. And what an impression it must have left that Sunday evening when he stood over Jerusalem and his chest heaved as he wept. And so now this is what is in their minds when Jesus causes the fig tree to be withered. They realized that it was not from hunger, nor was it from ill temper. It was a chastisement of God upon Israel. The withered fig tree is a visual parable that Israel would be judged because they put on an outward display but had no real fruit. They had religious life without substance. The fact that this tree had all kinds of leaves and no fruit portrayed exactly what Jesus saw in Jerusalem. Religious life without substance. R. Kent Hughes, in speaking about this, says, Israel was a barren fig tree, and the leaves only covered its nakedness. The magnificence of the temple and its ceremonies hid the fact that Israel had not brought forth the fruit of righteousness demanded by God. Religious life without substance. Outward displays without inward realities. I want to speak a little bit about fruit. First thing I want to share with you is that God looks upon the heart. God looks upon the heart. Do you remember when God sent Samuel the prophet to anoint David as the king over Israel? And he said, go to Jesse and Jesse will have eight sons and I'll show you which one of these sons I shall anoint as a king. He'll be a king after my own heart. And so Samuel went, and he went to choose one of these sons that the Lord would reveal to him. And he was looking at the older sons. And they were well built, and they looked good. And Samuel said, surely this is to be the king of Israel. He looks great. God said, no, Samuel. Lord, it must be this one. Look at this strapping young man. This will be the future king of Israel. And God said, Samuel, you're looking upon the exterior. I look upon the heart of man. And then came forth little David. Little David with a big heart was God's chosen king for Israel. God looks upon the heart, and he's not impressed with religious displays. There is not in heaven a roll book for church attendance. God does not keep track of your church attendance. He's not impressed with outward religious displays. There will be no rewards in heaven for the most beautiful church, for the best stained glass or the nicest poinsettias. There will be no reward in heaven for that. He is not impressed with exterior displays. God doesn't keep track of how often you come forward to take communion. 
God doesn't take snapshots of when your hands are lifted in worship and when they're in your pockets. God is not concerned with these outward things. God is concerned with the heart. I want us to turn together now to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Matthew 23, we're going to be starting in verse 23. Jesus says here, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. The scribes and Pharisees were the dominant religious leaders of the day. A hypocrite is an actor. That is the proper biblical definition of a hypocrite. A hypocrite is not a well-meaning Christian who is growing in the Lord and trying to walk with the Lord and fails. That is not a hypocrite. That is a Christian. A hypocrite is someone who is acting. A hypocrite is someone who puts on an outward appearance that does not match what is happening on the inside. He says, woe to you religious leaders, you hypocrites, you actors. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. They tithe from the herbs of their garden. These religious leaders would have little herb gardens. Mint and dill and cumin or cumin or however you pronounce it. But little herbs. And they were so religious that they would take from those herbs and they would pick one and they go, okay, well, a tenth goes to the Lord and 90 to me. And they would pick again and, oh, here's my cumin, a tenth to the Lord and 90 to me. And they would pick again and here's my deal and a tenth to the Lord. Got to be careful to give them the whole 10% and the 90 for me. He says, you hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Be very careful about that. And yet you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. And he defines them. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Yes, do tithe. Don't neglect that. But do not neglect the weightier provisions of the law. That is, being merciful, upholding justice, and cultivating faithfulness before God. These are conditions of the heart. Then he says in verse 24, You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You're so concerned about your religious observances, you you make sure you strain out the gnat, but you're swallowing a camel of sin. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's easy to fool people. It's easy to fool people. There's lots of actors, but you can't fool God. God is not concerned about the public opinion polls. God is not concerned about your popularity or what you were voted in the school yearbook. 
doesn't care about those things. You can fool men, but you can't fool God. Now, God is the lover of your soul. He weeps when he has to judge. He would rather extend mercy and loving kindness and grace to you. But the Lord looks upon the heart, and the exhortation here that he gives us is, pay attention to what's happening on the inside, not so much the exterior appearance. I've extended this invitation before. I'll extend it again. I would invite you guys to come early to church. Ten minutes, five minutes, three minutes. And come and sit down in the seat and prepare your inner man. Wash the inside of the cup. Lord, today I'm going to come before you in your holy presence. I, just, I want to be clean. God, I want to confess my sins. God, your word tells me in 1 John 1, 9 that if I confess my sins, you're faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Lord, I want, I want to get right before you now. I'm going to go ahead and quiet my heart and prepare my heart. I want everything that you have before me. And prepare yourself for what goes on here. If we were all to be honest, we spend more time preparing our external appearance than our internal condition. True? Yeah. I know. I'm just like you guys. We're all the same. But the Lord's exhortation here is to pay attention to the inside. God looks upon the heart. Now, God looks for fruit. And the reason that God looks for fruit is that when we have fruit in our lives, and we'll specifically identify what that fruit is in a moment, when we have fruit in our lives, God is glorified. John chapter 15, verse 8 and 16. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. See what it says there? That God is glorified when fruit comes from our lives. He's looking for glory. He commanded us. He chose us that we might bear fruit. Why? God wants to express upon his earth his character, his love, his mercy, who he is. He does that a few ways. He does that through general revelation. General revelation is a theological term for creation. The stars speak of the glory of God. God's invisible attributes are clearly seen through what has been created. He does it through general revelation and then special revelation. Special revelation is a theological term for the word of God that it reveals to us directly in the Word who God is. And then he does it through you revelation. You. God reveals himself in this world through you. And you may be the only Bible that some people ever read. Nobody gets saved. I retract that statement. I was going to say something that I don't agree with. Not many get saved by contemplating the bark on a tree. Some may have. But there's the need for the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Not everybody's going to open a Bible. But many will see your life, my life. God is glorified when we're imitators of Christ and we represent him and who he is. Now, saints, I understand that we fail at this. I fail at this daily. I'm more than all of you. I have a role that is more visible than many of you. And so my errors will appear larger. They will have greater consequences. 
I will be held to a stricter accountability. James chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, because as such, you will incur stricter judgment. I understand that we fail in this, but God is looking to be glorified through our lives, and there's a very easy, simple way to be sure that we bear fruit, and we'll get to it in a moment. But before we speak of it, I want us to realize this point. Fruit does not earn us righteousness. Rather, it demonstrates righteousness. We've got to be careful of falling into a works-oriented Christianity. We've got to be careful of falling into performance-oriented Christianity. You could do external things that were good all day long. It wouldn't earn you any merit with God. It wouldn't make you righteous in His eyes. There is one way to become righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made Him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You understand that Jesus Christ came to earth and he lived the perfect life because we were not able to. He lived the perfect life because we could not. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had lived my sinful life, that he might treat me in heaven as if I had lived Jesus' perfect life. Jesus lived the perfect life on our behalf. And when he becomes our savior, the Bible declares that we are placed in him. And because he is holy and perfectly righteous, we who are in him are declared righteous before God. Nothing you can do will add to that righteousness or take away from that righteousness. It is, according to our text, 2 Corinthians 5.21, the righteousness of God. It is perfect. That's your standing before God. We don't earn it through fruit, but fruit will demonstrate that we are walking in that standing that we have before the Lord. Fruit should follow repentance. John the Baptist said to the nation of Israel in Luke 3, 8, Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. And again in Acts 20, verse 26, or uh, Acts 26, verse 20. Repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. It is easy to say, I repent, and then continue in the same way. That's not repentance. That's being sorry. A pastor, a friend of mine often says, Oh, Britt, this is going to take more than a tear and a prayer. It's going to take more than, Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. It's going to take repentance. The exhortation of the Bible is, Repent, therefore, and turn from your sins that they might be washed away. And times of refreshing might come from being in the presence of the Lord. Repent is an old nautical term. It means to do an about face. You're leaving the Santa Barbara Harbor, and here comes a hurricane. There's never hurricanes there, but pretend there is. And the navigator sees a hurricane, and he says, Repent! And the wheel, the spinner driver guy knows he's got to do an about face and turn around. That's what it means to repent. It's to do an about face. Now listen. Concerning repentance, we change our mind and then God changes our hearts. You've got to change your mind in repentance. You've got to say, God, I'm wrong. And you're right. What I was doing was wrong. And what you say is right. I change my mind about this action. I'm turning from it. And the moment we do that, God begins to deal with our hearts. It's a wonderful thing. And this is where this fruit comes forward. You see, fruit is the transformation of character. 
Fruit is a transformation of character. And it's given to us succinctly in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. These are transformations of character. These are things contrary to our fallen hearts. But when we change our mind and we repent and submit ourselves to God, He begins to change our hearts. And now what flows forth from our heart is love. It wasn't there before. I only loved myself. Joy. I never had this joy. Oh, I had momentary happiness because I had stuff, but never this abiding joy. Peace. I, I didn't have this peace. Patience. I was never a patient man. Kindness. I was mean. Goodness. I was rotten. Faithfulness. Never. Gentleness. Self-control. This is a fruit of the Spirit that God works in our hearts when we change our mind and repent and submit ourselves to Him. Now here's how it comes out. Fruit flows from connectedness connectedness with God. Turn to John 15, please, very quickly. Keep your finger in Marky because we'll be back there. John 15, or stick a finger in Mark on your way from Matthew. John 15... Fruit flows from connectedness with God. What is God desiring in us? He's desiring fruit. Why? Because it glorifies God. How? By abiding in Christ. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. One thing here that is extremely clear and one that is not so clear. Here's what is clear. That when we abide in Christ, there is a natural byproduct that comes forth, which is the fruit of the Spirit. He said expressly, He who abides in me, verse 5, and I in him, he bears much fruit. So to have this fruit of the Spirit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, what must we do? We must abide in Christ. What does it mean to abide? Very simply, it means to remain, to dwell, to live, to submit. So to abide in Christ means to remain in Christ, not to walk away from Him, not to wander, not to turn to the right or the left, to remain with Him, to dwell to dwell in the Lord's presence, to dwell in the things of God, to live, as Paul said, to die is gain, but to live as Christ and to submit to the Lord. This is abiding in Christ. What does that mean for you? 
I don't know what that means for you, but for me to abide in Christ, a large part of that means spending a lot of time in this, in the Word of God. A lot of time in the Word of God. This is where God's attributes are clearly revealed to me. This is where His character is revealed to me. The way that He works. His plans for the world and for my life. This is where His love letter is contained. It's all in this Word. And so for me to abide in Christ, to live in Christ, to dwell, to cultivate this relationship, I've got to spend a lot of time in the Word of God. And that means making certain decisions. You understand what the Lord has invited us into is a relationship. And any relationship worth anything requires some work, doesn't it? Who's married? Oh, listen, it's wonderful to be married. It takes a little bit of work. That's not a bad thing, right? Who's your best friend? Your best friend. You love them. It's a great relationship. It takes a little bit of work. Next to my wife, Gerald is my best friend, and he always tells me, brother, it's hard to be your best friend. I'm working at it, but it's difficult. Pastor G. But any relationship worth having is going to take some work, and so does our relationship with the Lord. Now, he has done the work on the cross, amen? He has done the work on the cross. But it's us to press into that relationship, to make some decisions that allow us to dwell, to abide, to cultivate And so you've got to make certain decisions. I'm going to spend some time with the Lord. I'm going to forego other things and be with the Lord. You've got to do this when you're married. Someone could call up and say, bro, uh, Rincon's good. Let's go surfing. Um, I'm going to hang out with my wife. Britt, Monday, let's go dirt biking. Oh, I'm hanging out with my wife. Praise the Lord. I do that joyfully, but I've got to make some decisions. Forgoing some things for something of greater value. And so it is in our relationship with the Lord. There will be some things that you'll have to forego that are of temporal value for something of eternal weight, your relationship with Jesus Christ. So what does it mean for you to dwell with the Lord? For me, it means to make decisions. I'm going to get up early in the morning and read the Word of God. Before dawn, before my kids awake, because once my four-year-old's awake, it's over, man. And then my six-month-old, when she's awake, it's done for sure. So I make some decisions. I'm going to forego a little bit of sleep to cultivate my relationship with the Lord, to abide in Him, to connect with Him, to be in the vine, to bear fruit. It means pressing into worship. It means cultivating a life of prayer, scheduling prayer with people, scheduling your own personal prayer. You're going to have to make some responsible, relational decisions with regards to your walk with God. And the promise of the Word of God is, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. It is a natural byproduct. You see, contained in Christ is all the spiritual nutrients that we need. And as long as we stay connected to Him, the vine makes sure that we get everything that we need to be healthy and to bear fruit. That is what is very clear. What is somewhat unclear? This is the meaning of verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. That much I know. That can't be good. And so the logical decision of the Christian is to abide in Christ. The other one, verse 6, though I'm not positive what it means, it doesn't sound good. And so choose this week 
this year, choose to be abiding in Christ. So concerning fruit, we're going to teach the same text again next week, talk about other things. But concerning fruit, God looks upon the heart. He looks for fruit because it glorifies Him. Fruit doesn't earn us righteousness. Rather, it demonstrates that we have a righteous standing before Him. Fruit should follow repentance. Fruit is a transformation of character. And fruit flows from connectedness with God. Jesus cursed the fig tree and caused it to be withered as a visual parable of Israel. That though they had a great outward display of religion, there was no inner substance. And the warning is not only to Israel, it is to the church and it is to us as individuals. And my exhortation to you today would be inspect your lives even as the Lord is and see if there be fruit. If there isn't, do what it takes to connect with the Lord and you will bear much fruit. Amen? Father, thank you that you are the God who wept over Jerusalem. You are the God who wept at Lazarus' tomb. You are the God that cared enough to resurrect the widow's son. You are the God that cares. And you are also the God that withered the fig tree and the God who turned over the tables and made a whip and cast out the people who had a weird religious display with no inward substance, no real relationship with you. We just ask that this morning we would be found as those who are connected to you, Lord, abiding in you. Making responsible relational decisions to press into our Lord and our Savior and our King, Christ Jesus. So Lord, now in this wonderful moment, as this rain falls and we enjoy worship, we ask that you would just shine the light of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and reveal anything there that would be a hindrance to abiding and to bearing fruit. And that, Lord, you would beautifully, wonderfully, and mercifully, in your wise judgment, deal with those things, create in us a pure heart for your glory. Amen.